to welcome you this uh, morning on a special Sunday uh, to Alliance. Uh, two days from today, uh, January 22nd, uh, is the 46th anniversary of Roe versus Wade when our country legalized um, abortion. Certainly there were abortions uh, before that, but it became legal uh, in 19. 19- 73, and so in the last 46 years, as a country, we have aborted um, over 60 million uh, babies. And I, I know that our society likes to paint this as a, a political issue, and while it may be that, I want you to understand that it is a moral issue. That the scripture is clear that life begins at conception. God knows us from our mother's womb. Uh, In in fact, uh, that is not even the argument uh, anymore. Uh, Even science recognizes that life begins at conception. The issue is not whether or not we are killing a non-person, though we understand that we are. Uh, Rather, uh, the issue is whether or not a woman has a right over her own body to terminate a life. And I guess that's where the political part um, comes in. And so uh, I, uh, this Sunday is called Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, where the evangelical church um, across the uh, nation um, prays, and I, I want us to do that. Um, in fact, I'm going to ask Molly, I know she, I, I spied her over there, I'm going to ask Molly to come join me at the stage. I didn't tell her I was going to do this, but I just want her to come. She's usually standing right over here singing. But I just want her to come join me. Thanks for letting me put you on the spot. I want to pray for um, I want to pray for the following um, four things. And with the change in the Supreme Court, while it may seem uh, a far-fetched idea, I think that it is possible that we could see a reversal of Roe versus Wade. And you say, well, what difference does that make? There's still going to be illegal abortions. Yeah, but I don't want to live in a country where our country legalizes and thinks that we have the moral right to choose that. And so I want to pray that we would reverse it. I, I want to pray, secondly, for those uh, in this room. Who have um, perhaps been untouched by abortion. If the statistics are right, and they are, um, there are likely uh, uh, men and women in this room who have been touched by that. Uh, maybe you and encouraged a girlfriend or a wife to have an abortion. Maybe you have experienced that. And I want to remind you of God's grace. I want to remind you of forgiveness that is available. I want to pray for the Hope Pregnancy Resource Center. Uh, That's why I asked Molly to come up here. Molly Petrie is actually the executive director uh, of the Hope Pregnancy Center. And and, and it offers offers an alternative and, and help more than just words, they, they offer help uh, to, to young ladies who are facing an unplanned pregnancy and to let them know that there are options, there are other options available besides terminating a life. And they walk with them, and I'm very proud of that. Many of you have served as volunteers and staff um, at the Pregnancy Center, and I'm thankful for that. And then I want to pray uh, for a ministry we have here at Alliance that is actually spreading beyond um, the, uh, our, our church. It's called the Chosen Ministry, and that is a ministry of adoption and foster care um, where we are encouraging you uh, as, as followers of Jesus Christ to step forward and say, I would be willing to take a child. We have kids in foster care, 
in our county. They shouldn't be there. We should never have a young lady who says, I'm going to abort a, a child because we should be standing in line waiting to take the child. Mission field is right at our doors. So I just want to pray for those four things. So would you join me as we pray? Father, I thank you for um, this um, day, a day that we as a church um, in the church across the country has set aside to pray and, and to pray for this blight uh, on our nation. We repent. I'm reminded of Daniel taken into captivity for the sins of his country and he would three times a day he would open his window toward Jerusalem and he would pray and repent we repent for our nation and ask that you would turn us back to you and would you reverse this decision would you make us moral again in a number of different ways, and we know that that must first come by turning us in faith to Jesus Christ. And so we pray for that. We pray for revival in this nation. Father, I pray for people who have um, made some decisions in the past with which they struggle, perhaps today, especially as I bring it up in this room. And I pray that you would grant much grace and comfort and hope and healing and would you help them to know, remind them that there is hope and healing and forgiveness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Care for them in ways that only you can. I thank you for Molly. I thank you for her staff. I thank you for the, the Hope Center and the way that they are in this community very intentionally to help young ladies, maybe not even young, help ladies um, who are, are, are facing pregnancies that perhaps were unplanned and to offer hope and to remind them that there are other opportunities uh, that they can do to, to include coming alongside them if they choose to keep the child. And we want to be a church that does that, that comes alongside them and cares for them. But also we want to be a church that as the chosen ministry um, is here, we want to be a church that steps up and say, we'll take children it doesn't, it, pre-born children, infants, <coughs> elementary age kids, middle school, high school, because we want to care for children. It's a mission field. It's an opportunity for us to share the gospel. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, taking care of orphans, orphans, and widows in their distress. Help us to be that kind of church. We commit ourselves to you to that end. In Christ's name. Amen. Turn our attention to our continuing study in the book of Hebrews. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen, so says our author. Um, now, certainly... That definition of faith has a forward look, a future focus. <clears throat> if you stop and think about it, you don't have to have faith in something that you've already seen, right? And that's sight. I don't have to have faith that Clemson will do a butt whooping on Alabama. <laughs> I watched it. Perhaps you read about it. 
boring as it was, since it was a slaughter. Now, if I told you three weeks ago that it would be a blowout, not many would have believed it unless it was the other way. That would have taken faith, but but not now. It's no longer faith. You can just read it. Faith is assurance, conviction in things not yet seen, namely that God will fulfill his promises in the future. How can we be sure? Well, he has proven himself faithful over and over in the past. We can read about it. And so, Hebrews 11 gives us a long list of faithful people of the past who believed God that he would faithfully fulfill his promises as yet unseen. And and as a demonstration that our faith is rightly placed, author of Hebrews has turned his attention to some mighty acts of God from the past that are meant to encourage our faith. Look at what he has done on behalf of his people. These are amazing stories, but therein lies a further problem. Because of a lack of faith, many don't believe the stories of the past. Sure, they may be recorded for us, but they're just myth or legend or religious propaganda. And you understand that if cynical or skeptical unbelievers can get you to doubt the veracity, that is the faithfulness, the truthfulness of the Bible, the battle is half won. You are well on your way uh, to discarding the whole thing. You can't trust the Bible. We've got a problem. And so I would suggest this morning that your faith even has a sense, there's a sense in which it even has a backward look. That the stories we read in the Bible uh, are true, Incredible as they are, unbelievable, ridiculous, they happened. And we must have faith that they did, even if modern scholarship scoffs. Simple question. Do you believe the stories? If so, and I might add they really did happen, they will bolster your faith for the future. That's what they're supposed to do. Last week, we finished our look at Moses, a man of great faith, and his faith was rewarded. God did some rather incredible things, namely a couple that I'll remind you of. In in the 10th plague against Egypt, he sent the death angel to kill the firstborn of every house. Well, except for those who displayed faith by displaying blood of a lamb on their doorways. As a result, the death angel passed over them. Incredible. That's an amazing story. Do you believe it? Because it foretells the story of the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Pharaoh finally let the people go, but then, of course, he changed his mind, leading to another unbelievable story of God's faithfulness and his people's faith in him. Remember, they got to the Red Sea, but they crossed over on dry ground as God parted the waters. Really? Yes. Amazing, unbelievable story. It's supposed to encourage us if you believe them. Do you believe them? Right this morning at our last two specific stories in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, like last week, they are rather familiar stories, stories which are supposed to increase our faith, not our skepticism and cynicism. 
Again, the author is trying to encourage us with, with the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promises. He'll do it. He's done it in the past, if you believe. Even if that faithfulness involves incredible, unbelievable stories. Well, let's read these last two, they're related, these last two stories in Hebrews 11, verses 30 and 31. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not, appear, did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she welcomed the spies in peace. Two very short verses that summarize yet another great unbelievable story in the Bible. The, the conquest of Jericho. And the truth is, the story is even more incredible than we know. And we face the same uh, challenges last week, familiarity. But, 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 don't, but don't allow the familiarity to bore you. I mean, this is better than Clemson beating up on Alabama. And, and we read about it in the first few chapters of, of Joshua. Here's the question, will you believe, will you believe it? I hope so. Because the stories are recorded to encourage your faith. Joshua has assumed command of the children of Israel after Moses' death. He, he's to lead them in conquest of, of Canaan. At the beginning of the book of Joshua, they're still on the east side of the Jordan River. The land of promise, promised to them, is actually on the west side of the river. In chapter 2, Joshua sends in a couple of guys to spy out the land. Specifically, he wants them to take a look at the high-walled city of Jericho. History and archaeology tell us that th there were actually two walls... Best we can tell, the outer wall was about 11 feet high. The second interior wall, somewhere between 25, that's about the height of our, of our roof or of our, of, uh, of our ceiling there, up to 35 feet tall. Between those two walls, which were actually close together, that's how this, this picture is actually a little bit off in that way, they were only about 15 feet apart. There was, on top of it was a plastered escarpment pitched at about 35 degrees, that's a roof, pitched at about 35 degrees, making um, scaling the walls or a battering, battering ram rather difficult. Now, I want you to think about that. Does that mean walls keep people out? That's a current event. <laughs> I'll let you decide that, all right? It worked for Jericho, or, or did it? I read an op-ed uh, just this week where the author was suggesting that the walls don't work. Consider Jericho, she said. Now, regardless of where you are on that, this is not, I'm not making a political statement. I thought that was rather clever. Come on, it was at least funny. Between these two walls, people lived in small homes, apartments. This is where Rahab lived. We'll come back to her since the author takes the story in somewhat reverse order. The spies come back with a favorable report. The inhabitants of Jericho are melting in fear because of us, they say. The end of chapter 2. The city is shut up tightly. Joshua 6 says that no one was, uh, went out, no one's coming in. Great, that's what, so the, 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 the first thing the Israelites must do is cross the Jordan River, which was actually at flood stage. Now, at that time, the river could be, at flood stage, could be almost a mile across. Almost not fordable, obviously it was fordable because the two spies went, but almost not fordable, fordable difficult for their flocks and their children. But God, you see, had promised the land to them. 
Is this going to be a barrier? He had promised the land. He had promised it to Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob and their descendants. And further, he had promised Joshua, listen, he had promised Joshua that he would be with Joshua just like he had been with Moses. Really? How, how's that? Well, because that very famous story uh, that comes to mind about Moses is right in the previous verse. God parted the Red Sea so the Israelites could walk across on dry ground. He does the exact same thing 40 years later, this time under Joshua. This time, the Jordan River parts and the people walk across incredibly on dry ground. Now, our author doesn't mention that, uh, uh, it, but in fact, chapter 4 of Joshua says, as a result, the people revered him just as they had revered Moses' mission accomplished. It's a rather interesting story. They, they come up to the Jordan flood stage. I don't have time to tell the story. Listen fast. They come up to the, not in my notes, they come up to the river. It's in flood stage. They camp there for three days. And after three days, Joshua comes up with the plan. I suspect it came from the Lord because he says to the priest, that big golden box called the Ark of the Covenant, heavy, I want you to go carry that and stand in the middle of the river. How would you like to be a priest? And it says the moment that their feet touched the river, it parted. And they walked across. The problem with the picture was they did not rock, walk right by the Ark. No one was allowed within a thousand yards of the Ark. Highlighting that God did this. Cross the river, camp about two miles from Shut Up Jericho, place called Gilgal. Again, no one going out, no one coming in to Jericho. But it is a fortified city. If they are successfully to take the land, they've got to take Jericho. They, they can't leave it behind them. You see, it is right in the middle, about five, six, seven miles from the Jordan River. But it is right in the middle of the land, and they are going to divide and conquer the land. That's exactly what they do. After they take Jericho and Ai, they turn to the south, southern campaign. Then they turn to the north, northern campaign. Military strategists to this day say, this was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it's God's plan. But how to take Jericho? This was a highly fortified city. How are they going to do it? We read a rather interesting passage at the end of Joshua 5, right before chapter 6 and the conquest of Jericho. They've crossed the Jordan, and one evening, city cut, shut up tightly, so Joshua feels comfortable. Commander Joshua decides to do a little reconnaissance of the city himself. And we read these rather interesting words, last three verses of Joshua 5. Now, it came about when Joshua was by Jericho, literally could be in Jericho, he's right there. He lifted up his eyes and looked up, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. But that's, you can't say no to that question. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to, them, said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, You still don't know who I am. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And Joshua did so. This is an amazing encounter. Joshua is trying to figure out how to take the city. He's right outside the walls. He looks up and there's a man standing with his sword drawn, no doubt 
Adrenaline is flowing. You know, toxic masculinity. It is one of those, uh, if, if this is one of the city's inhabitants, he is an enemy and Joshua is about to engage in hand-to-hand combat. He draws his own sword, runs over to the enemy, uh, to the man and says, who are you? Are you for us or for our adversaries? Basically, who goes there, friend or foe? Pretty simple question. Not that hard. Are you for us or against us? But the man responds, no. What do you mean, no? Maybe you did not hear me. This is not a yes or no question. It is either for us or or against us, one or the other. But the man responds, no. Rather, I come now as captain of the host, host of the Lord. What? His response, you see, is this. I'm not for you. I'm not for them. I'm for me. Are you? I'm captain of the host of the Lord. The question is, are you for me, Joshua? Joshua gets it, falls to his face. He knows he's in the presence at this point of someone greater. How greater? Look at the next verse. The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place you're standing is holy ground. Does that sound familiar to anyone? It's only happened one other time. It only happens twice in Scripture. When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, he said the same thing to him. Moses, take off your shoes. This is God speaking and you are on holy ground. And then all of a sudden, remember, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Joshua, take off your shoes. And the question is not, am I on your side? The question is rather, are you on mine? I I think the application is obvious. The Lord often has that question for us. Listen carefully. How often do we marshal God to our purposes as if he is some heavenly butler called to do our bidding. I've got this all figured out, God. Now do what I want. Not, God, what do you want us to do, but, God, what will you do for me? Here are my plans. Now you bless them. Take off your shoes, Joshua, for the place you are standing is holy. He does so with his face to the ground. And that story, I must tell you, always gets me. What would I do if I came face to face with a holy God? Great to finally meet you, God. Now, here's my to-do list. He says, I know. I've been listening to your prayers for a long time. This is called a theophany. That is a physical appearance of... God to his people. Does so several times in the Old Testament. Usually appears as the angel of the Lord before he takes on flesh in the New Testament in the person of Jesus. Simple question for you today. Have you come face to face with God? And if you have, have you bowed your knee? I suppose it depends on whether or not you believe the stories. It brings us to chapter 6, the battle for Jericho. Uh, You know this story. 
No chapter divisions, by the way, between chapters 5 and 6. So Joshua right now is still on his face before God. City shut up tightly. And the Lord says to him, verses 2 and following, See, I have given you Jericho into your hand with its king, city states, every city has a king, and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all of the men of war, all of the men of war. That means there were like half a million of them, just to be clear, uh, circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark, the ark of the covenant. Just to be clear, I want you to understand, I'm with you. Maybe something further. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. Are you kidding me? Do you believe that? Put yourself in Joshua's shoes. You're going to shout as you're here trying to figure this out, and the walls are going to fall down flat. I know you've heard that since Sunday school. That's nonsense. People will go up every man straight ahead. Joshua summons the people, told them the plan. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what his general said? Um, Josh, um, we've been, well, you were out taking a nighttime stroll last night. We've been strategizing, and we think we should build a siege ramp. We found some big trees. We can build a battering ram. Maybe we should just lay siege and, 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 and wait them out. We should, well, do anything but your plan, Joshua. But this was God's plan. Here's my question. Why? Why was this God's plan? This was not the normal way to take a city. What is this about? Yes, later, God gets involved in a battle. Chapter 10, as we looked at last week, he throws down some huge uh, hailstones on, on the enemy. But what is this about? This is quite, you do understand this is quite unconventional. Why? I could come up with at least the following two reasons. First, it was to build their, their faith. Yes, these people had come out of Egypt, but they were the young ones. Everyone over the age of, of 20 had died in the wilderness. Hebrews 3 makes that clear. Everyone except Joshua and Caleb. They had died because of, of unbelief. Now it was time for the next generation to believe, to trust that God, their God, was with them. Are you going to trust me and follow this rather ridiculous plan to take this city? I can do great things. You're going to trust God? Do you believe the stories? A second reason, I think God was reminding them and us who was in charge. <laughs> the inhabitants are melting in fear, hidden behind locked doors and, and, and barred doors and, and gates. And you think it's because they're melting in fear because of you. Is that right? Yeah, I understand that there are two million of you, but I am the one who delivered you from Egypt with a mighty hand. I am the one who uh, unleashed the ten plagues. Remember that? I am the one who sustained you for 40 years in the wilderness. I gave you water to drink. I gave you manna to eat. Your clothes and your shoes didn't even wear out. I parted the sea when you left Egypt, and I parted the river just a few days ago for you to come into the land of promise. Remember that? They're melting in fear because of us. Oh, is that right? 
I'm the one that led you in battle against the kings on the east side of the Jordan, and I am the one who will lead you in battle on the west side as well. You think, you think this is about you? They're melting in fruit because of who? Because of me. Let's get that part straight. This is my battle, and you are my people. The battle belongs to the Lord. I think sometimes he may do the same thing with us. We win a few battles. We cross a few rivers. And, and, and a few seemingly overwhelmingly conquerable obstacles, and we can become rather full of ourselves. Can I remind us this morning who did it? Can I remind us that this is about God's glory and he will not share it with another? How did the Israelites respond? They believed. By faith, they acted. <laughs> it was a crazy plan, but, but they did it. And as a result, God got the glory. The rest of chapter 6 tells us they walked around the city, uh, Joshua 6, they walked around the city once each day for six um, uh, days in complete silence. Only the eerie sound, sounding of the seven priests blowing the seven ram's horns. That would have been weird. And don't miss the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized the very presence of God, led them because this was about him. Don't miss that there is no mention of the inhabitants of Jericho saying or doing anything. I find it always incredibly interesting that my commentaries talk about how undoubtedly that the people began to gather at the top of their wall, uh, hurling down abuse and taunting the Israelites. Well, well, watch a VeggieTales video and see the French peas making fun of the few Israelites marching around. Really? Is that what happened? Why would they do that? They are melting in fear. I don't think that there is anything recorded because I don't think they said or did anything. They were quaking in their sandals, too frightened to say or do anything. They're just hoping in some way, like, please just go away. Some of us will be in Jericho either later this week or early next week. I can't remember which. Got a little trip to Israel planned. And we will find, by the way, I've been there. It is a rather small city, Tel El Sultan. Estimates place it at maybe a couple thousand people. Maybe the surrounding people came and flooded into the city because of the enemy. Maybe there were 20, 25,000 people. How many Israelites were there camping two miles away? Two million. I think they were scared to death and they weren't saying anything. Just go away. Then came the ominous seventh day. On that day, they marched around the city seven times again in silence. But the se at, the seventh, at the end of the seventh revolution, we read, at the seventh time when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city shall be under the ban. That is, destroy it all. None of it is for you. It all belongs to the Lord because this is about me. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. So the people shouted the priest with the trumpets and when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, people shouted with a great shout, the wall fell down flat. <laughs> really? Yes. Do you believe the story? Archaeological evidence shows that indeed that's exactly what happened. That something happened that caused the walls to fall down right on themselves. 
People went up into the city, every man straight in, straight ahead, they took the city. Took the city, everyone in it was put to the sword, everyone except Rahab the harlot and everyone who was with her in the house, which brings us very quickly to her story. We have to rewind a bit to go back to chapter 2 when Joshua first sent the spies to Jericho. I always find it interesting, Moses sent, Moses sent 12 spies, Joshua only sent two. Why? He did the math. Last time, only two of them came back with a good report, him and Caleb. So he says, well, I'm only sending two. After the men who had been, um, so, so the spies, excuse me, go into Jericho to check things out. They go to the house of Rahab the harlot, stroke of genius. Of course, she would have men at her house. But the king of Jericho somehow found out that they had come, sent for these spies to be captured. But Rahab hid them on the rooftop among the stalks of black, about three feet tall. They would soak them in water, and then dry them out, and then they could be woven into linen, I guess. She, she told them, she, she hid them up there and then told the soldiers that came. They left. She protected them. Why? Why did she do that? After the men who had been looking for the spies, they've gone, they left. She went back to the rooftop, and we read her words. Here's why. Don't miss this. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, she gets it right. I know that the Lord, she used the covenant name for God, Yahweh has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. That happened 40 years ago. Dried up the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the, uh, beyond the Jordan, the east side, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard of it, our, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. She got it right. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's household. Give me a pledge of truth. Spare my father and my mother and my brother's sisters, all who belong. Deliver our lives from death. Amazing. She got it right. While the Israelites were saying they're melting in fear because of us, Rahab understood that they were actually melting in fear because of the Lord. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. This is a statement you understand of faith. Which is why our author says, by faith, Abraham the harlot did not perish with those who were disobedient. That is the rest of Jericho after she had welcomed the spies in peace. This was a tremendous act of faith. If the men... The spies had been discovered. They would have been captured and, and killed, as would she. There's no telling what they would have done to her. But by faith in the true and living God, she identified with him, hid the spies, trusting God. And what could have, at what could have been great personal cost. You see, here's the point. It costs something to have faith in God. This has been the author's point. His readers were fearing for their lives because of their faith. And so the author points them to Rahab the harlot. 
She lived in the city wall, we know, because when she helped the spies get away, she lowered a rope out her window and they escaped that way, which the account tells us was on the city wall, which is amazing. Remember when the Israelites circled the city seven times on that seventh day, let out a shout, the wall fell down flat. Apparently all the wall, well, except the part where, a, uh, where Rahab lived. Uh, that's another miraculous part of the story. Well, if you believe it. She believed God, God spared her life. It's interesting. The list of people by name begins with Abel, righteous Abel, who offered a worship of faith, and it ends with Rahab, the harlot, who offered an obedience of faith. That's what James says about her in his book, James chapter 2, in the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. To be clear, his argument in James chapter 2 is she was justified by faith, but she proved it by her works. Meaning you will see Rahab, the harlot in heaven. I find it interesting that both the author of Hebrews and James refer to her as Rahab, the harlot. It's been 1,500 years when they wrote their books. Will that title for her ever go away? I think it serves as a reminder to us of who we were before God saved us, undeserving, unfaithful, rebellious sinners. But by faith, he has transformed our lives. And it is good, perhaps, to remember what he saved us from, who we were before he changed our lives. Who were you? In closing, I want you to think very quickly with me about something else that struck me. Why send the spies into Jericho in chapter 2? Why? I mean, sure, Joshua didn't know until the beginning of chapter 6 how he was going to take the city with that crazy plan, but, but God knew back in chapter 2, and he, he knew that, so why did he allow the spies to go into Jericho? Why didn't he say, no need for that, I got this? Was the information gathered necessary for the conquest of the city? No, not exactly. If you're going to conquer the city by destroying the walls, what information was needed for them? Find some secret? Nope, not necessary. Lay out? Not necessary. So if the spies were not sent in for necessary reconnaissance, for what or better for whom did they go? For Rahab, the harlot, to save her. As God was about to destroy the city and its inhabitants, there was one of his own within. And he sent the spies to preserve her life. <laughs> because, you see, there is one other place, only one other place that her, name, that her name appears in the entire New Testament. We've seen the first two, Rahab, the harlot, it's in Matthew chapter 1, where we read of the lineage of Joseph, you know, the earthly father of Jesus. You see, for Jesus to be the Messiah, he had to come from the line of David. And, and, and verses 5 and 6 of Matthew chapter 1 says this, Salmon was the father of Boaz by 
Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. Meaning, Rahab the harlot was in the line of David, the king. And while this is Joseph's line and not Mary, Luke 3 records that Mary too was of the line of David, which means, listen to this, which means that Rahab's harlot's, Rahab the harlot's blood was flowing in David's veins. And in Jesus. What a beautiful picture of grace. You see, she is Rahab the believer. The one who acted on her faith. And was in the line of the Messiah, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And God said, I want you to go save her. Because she's going to be the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. She may have been a harlot, but her life was forever changed by the grace of God. How bad have you been? Who were you before God saved you? And what grace has he shown you?